Hi, this is Cody Daigle-Oriens. Before we get started with this week's episode, I wanted to tell you a little bit about a project we're launching here at Bearded Fruit. On May 1st, we'll be starting Everyday Activist, a year-long web project that aims to shine a light on the people and organizations around the globe working to improve the lives of LGBT people. Now, we'll feature real people working in the LGBT community, offering their wisdom, their insight, and their suggestions on how any of us, LGBT or ally, can be a better everyday activist. So each day starting in May, we'll publish a short five-question interview with someone in the community. And the interview will describe the work they do, offer some inspiring words about the necessity of our activism, and conclude with a suggestion of a simple action that anyone could do to help improve the lives of LGBT people. We hope Everyday Activist will inspire people to engage in advocacy every single day of their lives. In small ways, each day, hopefully, we can inspire people to move the world forward. So if you're interested in participating in Everyday Activists, just send us an email at beardedfruitpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll send you all the information you need to participate. And as always, thanks for listening, and on with the episode. Hi, this is Cody Daigle-Oriens. This is Neil Daigle-Oriens. And welcome to another episode of Bearded Fruit. Right. It's because of this podcast that I realized just how nasally my voice sounds. Oh, well, I'm glad that we're providing the LGBT community with useful tools for self-improvement. And nasal. And then. Um, so, before we dive in, uh, a little personal things. Do you want to say some personal things? Just talk like you people? You want to say some personal things. Yeah, I'm things. learning Spanish. You're very proud of this. I'm really excited. I'm, I'm learning Spanish with Duolingo. So I, next week, I'm going to take him into a full immersion and uh, bring him to the Chipotle of Manchester. Yeah, because that's that's definitely a full... Sofritas. <laughs> Actually, they're very delicious. Plurfavor. Yeah, I can only talk about... Um, turtles. Turtles and apples and what uh, what turtles drink and eat. They eat apples. I know what a what a a belt is. Oh, that's new. You learned yeah. that today yet? Yeah. I'm very um, proud of you. And that's pretty much about it. So this week on the podcast, we're going to talk uh, a little bit about a new report that came out in the April issue of uh, Science, uh, a magazine. The article was by David Brockman and Joshua. Kala. And uh, we're going to talk about some of the issues surrounding that article and then larger issues about uh, the ick factor and how that has affected the LGBT community over its history and today. So we're going to start with that uh, article from the issue of science. Uh, again, it was by David Brockman and Joshua Kala, and it's called Durably Reducing Transphobia, a Field Experiment on Door-to-Door Canvassing. Terribly exciting title. Really? I have never been more titulated by a science oh, magazine absolutely. article. But it's actually a really cool article. So the report looked at how attitudes of Miami voters towards transgender individuals shifted after canvassing. They found a group of voters, and some of the voters were engaged with canvassers in a conversation about recycling. A different group of voters were engaged in a canvassing conversation that was specifically about transgender rights and transgender issues. And uh, then those voters were later contacted by the, the people who were conducting the research. 
three days later, three weeks later, six weeks later, and then three months later. And they were specifically asked about their issues, about their attitudes towards transgender issues. And what they found was that those voters who were canvassed about transgender issues by both transgender individuals who are openly transgender and by non-transgender individuals, those voters who were explained the issues surrounding transgender rights were more favorable to vote positively toward transgender rights than those who had the conversations about recycling after after the fact, after though. up to three months after the fact uh, and there was statistically significant differences not just like one person was like i guess but no yeah they found that that those voters who had discussions about transgender issues up to three months after that conversation they were found to be more favorable toward trans rights Wow. Yeah. And what was really interesting about this uh, this article was that the conversations were short. They were only 10 minutes long. Uh, as much as a 10-minute conversation, this research has found, can positively impact a person's attitude about something they may otherwise have prejudice toward. Does the article reference contact hypothesis at all? A little bit. It talks about, uh, specifically what they call it, is how to combat intergroup prejudice. Mm -hmm. um, here's a little quote from that article about it. Uh, it defines intergroup prejudice as negative attitudes about an outgroup, and it's the root cause of numerous adverse social, political, and health outcomes. Uh, they believe that these intergroup prejudices, such as those against uh, homo like homosexuals or transgender people, are deeply ingrained during childhood and highly resistant to change. Um, but what they have found through this is that in these conversations, in small conversations, positive change can happen with people who may hold negative attitudes toward LGBT people. I, th I think what's so interesting about social sciences especially is that some of these things seem so obvious. Like if you get to know somebody on an equal playing field, you're probably going to have less bias against the group that they're with. Like that seems so obvious. And yet we do require somebody with a PhD to figure this out and like really say like, no, like prejudices are based off of the fact that you don't know people who are from those groups and if you do know them and you get to learn to respect them as an equal then you lose those prejudices so it's just funny that prejudices come from ignorance mm -hmm. and it's just ig being ignorant of what people are like and what i thought was particularly interesting about this is the 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 time of the conversation, the length of the conversation, that we, we think about these preju these prejudices that we have, what they call intergroup prejudices, are deeply ingrained and they're with us because they're instilled in us from the time that we're very young, that even something as simple as a short conversation about a voting issue could impact someone's attitudes about a person they don't understand and may otherwise have had really negative attitudes toward for up to three months. I mean, I, I found the three months a rather surprising result that that one conversation could lead to months of a changed attitude about an issue, which I think is pretty impressive. Hooray, people. Hooray, yeah. humanity. Sometimes... Just sometimes there's glimmers of hope in how humans treat and behave around other humans. And so I guess what I wanted to talk about today and to circle around this question of, of our attitudes changing and um, how those attitudes begin is to talk a little bit about the politics of the ick factor. Polit 
Ticks, yeah. icks, yeah. The politics of the ick factor. Um, so for our, the purposes of our conversation, the ick factor uh, is the that sort of pervasive attitude, the shorthand for this idea that what is sitting at the base of homophobia and transphobia in a lot of people is uh, an, an icky feeling, a general uneasiness that straight or cis people have about what gay and trans people do with their bodies. And that... The ick factor, as we've seen historically, but also currently in North Carolina and Mississippi and all these other states that are pr pushing these bathroom bills and other uh, anti-LGBT legislation, that what sits at the core of it is a is kind of this like feeling that what gay that gay people are kind of gross, and that what they're doing is kind of gross and and scary. Well, it, it all comes back to just a puritanical like belief of things that are different from what we do are gross and evil. Um, it, it's just so interesting to me, too, because people are gross. Like, babies are super gross. Uh, and, like, we make those willingly and then, like, are happy that we make them and they're gross. And then, like, little kids are gross and then, like, adults are gross. Everybody's gross. Have you ever been sick? Being sick is so gross. And you're like upset that I do something that you are that's slightly different from what you do in the bedroom. Like everything is gross, but that's because we we have a fear of the other. We have a fear of what's different. We have a fear of what we don't quite understand. It, the fact that like that they wouldn't necessarily do with their penises what we are interested in doing with our penises is scary and different. It's and, gross in an unfamiliar way. Yeah, it's like I wouldn't do that. So an unfamiliar gross. That's a great play title. Yeah, like if I, but I think at the, the root of that is a feeling that if 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 you're doing something that I don't understand and you're doing something that I think is kind of icky, then you have the potential to do a lot of other things that I would be very uncomfortable with and you present some sort of danger. If you do something different than me in the bedroom, you might steal my wallet. <laughs> I mean, kind I mean, of. I mean, I guess so. You yeah, know, I guess so. Yeah, that kind of. That's that's kind of the logic. Like you, ew, you kiss dudes with beards. You might like take my candy from my baby. I don't know. That was weird. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, audience, for that. Well, I, but I, you know, historically, homophobia has been linked to a lot of things, has been linked to disease. Um, AIDS comes to mind, but then a ton of other legislative battles were fought using studies that linked a whole array of physical array, um, ailments to, to gay sex. Um, in Uganda, the Kill the Gays bill was pushed and promoted in that country by using kind of graphic depictions of what gay people do, which we're going to actually hear a little bit later. Ooh, um, exciting. And they use these kind of silly... And also, they link to pedophilia. They link to the possibility of violence, like in, in the, the legislation that's happening now. Trans people are linked to being sexual predators or, or just capable of, of inflicting violence on innocent women and children in bathrooms. All of these fears and all of these the, these links to things that are terrifying and scary have been used to simply continue to oppress and make gay and LGBT people overall second-class citizens to take away rights. Thanks, science. Pseudoscience. 
So I wanted to to share some of what we're talking about when we're talking about the ick factor and hearing some like really good examples of, of people using it as an argument against gay people. Um, and I found some kind of really outrageous ones for fun. So I don't know if you remember back in 2014, there was a preacher, Stephen Anderson from Arizona, who advocated killing gays as a cure for AIDS. Do you remember this guy? That's not how disease and yeah, virus work but this guy so we're gonna hear a little bit of of, of um of this uh he was the arizona pastor is how he was known in the mm. news so here's here's him talking and what the bible actually says and by the way turn to leviticus 2013 because i actually discovered the cure for aids okay now this is the cure for aids okay and you know everybody's talking about Let's have an AIDS-free world by 2020, or let's have an AIDS-free... Look, we could have an AIDS-free world by Christmas. <laughs> you know, or at least... Okay, it wouldn't be totally AIDS-free, but we'd be like 90-some percent AIDS-free by Christmas if we would follow this. Okay, here's what the Bible says, Leviticus 20:13. If a man also lie with mankind as he lieth with the woman, okay, it says, even both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. And that, my friend, is the cure for aid. It was right there in the Bible all along. Yeah, so... Okay. Yeah, well, like, what's... To, to me, that that's a great distillation of what the ick factor is. Uh, AIDS is a, is, a, is a disease that has killed hundreds of thousands of people all over the globe. And what he links as the the way to get rid of this hor this other horrible thing that we are all terrified of and that we find terribly frightening is we have to kill people we have to kill like, men who put their penises together or women who lie together mm -hmm. that gay sex this thing that we find icky and uncomfortable is the thing that causes all of this other terrible all of these are the terrible things which isn't how biology works which is not how aids works i mean aids now does i mean is there aids in the heterosexual community is still it exists a, it's a thing it's still a problem and especially and in other parts of the world not necessarily in the united states but globally it's not just gay people who have aids it's anyone so speaking of other parts of the world uh, a more uh, a more um entertaining, I guess, version of the ick factor is from Pastor Dr. Martin Sempa. He is a Ugandan-American pastor who was leading the fight for the kill, the gays bill in Uganda. And he was a little more blatant about using uh, what he thinks is gross to scare people into fighting. Oh, is this fighting. what I think it is? Here we go. We are making legislation to make sure that sodomy and homosexuality never sees the light of legality in this land of the Pearl of Africa. I've taken time to do a little research to know what homosexuals do in the privacy of their bedroom. One of the things they do is called anal leaking, where they, a, a man's anus is leaked like this by the other person like ice, cream. like ice cream and then what happens even poopoo -poo comes out the other one poopoo's out huh? and then they eat the poopoo -poo. the other one they do is they have a sex practice called feasting where they insert their hand into the other man's hand and it goes all the, into the anus all the way and it is so painful they have to take drugs but they enjoy it they eat the poopoo -poo. 
I remember that. Yeah, and that was, and he went on also to describe fisting and other other act, other other gay activities, particularly mm-hmm. gay male activities, because mm-hmm. in these situations there there's not a lot of conversation about what what gay women do. It's mostly what gay men do. Well, women don't have sexualities, so well, yeah. so why would they? Yeah, they're like deeply concerned about what gay men are doing, and he goes on to describe things, and you know people are are responding in the room in horror and outrage and what they were wanting to do is put gay people in jail possibly kill them uh you could suffer you could pay the penalty of death just because you were found to engage in homosexual activities according to these laws the laws didn't pass but they're resurfacing strangely enough um and that's using again people's uncomfortableness with the what gay people do with their bodies to legislate against them. It's so interesting to see how far people will go to hurt other people when they're uncomfortable or like just how unwilling people are to understand each other because of uncomfort. And it's not something that's new. Historically, the ick factor has been used against gay people uh, since the really the beginning of the gay rights movement in the 70s in California, the Briggs Initiative was a piece of legislation that was attempt they were attempting to pass this piece of legislation that would ban gay people from being teachers in classrooms, and the arguments against gay people in classrooms were they use the ick factor as well. Um, I have a bit of a conversation from a television uh, debate between John Briggs, who was the author of the Briggs initiative and the, the piece of legislation and Harvey Milk who you hear on this piece and also uh, a, a college professor and activist Sari, Sally Gerhart um, so here's a bit of that conversation it uh, was Prop 6 was that initiative but this is them debating uh, on television in the 70s the Briggs initiative yourself say that the heterosexual is the child molester and if in your statements here in all these newspapers and tonight that child molestation is not an issue if it is not an issue, why do you put out literature that hammers at home? Why do you play on that myth and fear? Same thing with VD, Harvey. We put out publications about VD so you can avoid it. This is campaign we're, literature. We're, we're, yes, we're trying to keep people from falling into that trap. We're trying to prevent it by pointing it out. And by the way, I don't make the statement that 95% of all the heterosexuals commit... What percent is it? No, I don't know. You tell me. The state says 90 to 95%. Well, I, I've never seen that in writing. Yeah, I, I don't make those statements, you do, but we're not You talking. even says here, we are not talking about, homo, about child molestation. The fact is, at least 95% of the people are heterosexual. If we took heterosexuals out and homosexuals out, you know what? We'd have no teacher. We'd have no teacher. No That's child right. molestation. So, so you're since, saying that the percentage of population you know. is equal to the percentage of child molestation. No, there's I, no difference. No, I'm not saying that at all. No, that's what you just said. No, no, I'm saying that we cannot prevent child molestation, so let's cut our odds down and take out the homosexual group and keep in the heterosexual why, group. Why take out the homosexual group when if it is more than, you know, <laughs> overwhelmingly it is true that it's the heterosexual men, I might add, who are the child well, I believe that's a myth. I've never seen... I've oh, never seen senators, the FBI, the National Council on Family Relations, mm-hmm. the Santa Clara County Child Sexual Abuse Treatment Center, and uh, on and on uh, and on. So... His argument in in defending this piece of legislation to say that LGBT people or well gay people shouldn't be teachers in California in the seventies, he not only links gay people to pedophilia, saying that if we get rid of of gay people gay teachers in classrooms, then we'll get rid of pedophilia. But he also links them to 
venereal disease, Mm -hmm. which has nothing to do with being a teacher, like nothing at all. Mm -hmm. He equates dealing with homosexuals in the same way that they would deal with, with venereal disease, that gays are equal to disease. And this was at the beginning of the gay rights movement, this, this idea that we can create legislation and we can create laws that will harm gay people because we're grossed out by them and we're freaked out. But we can use your fear and we can use your discomfort mm-hmm. to harm people that we don't like. Do you have um, any examples from uh, Prop 8 back in like 2010, 2011? No, I don't. But the, that was that was also a similar thing where it was like, oh, they'll teach your kids about sodomy. And yeah. It's like... Who who does that? Like they don't they don't teach kids enough about sex to begin with, let alone would they get into specifically about sodomy. So like And there was and there also with Prop 8, there was also the whole like this idea that if if gay people can get married, then that kids will then think it's okay and it will recruit them. That through marriage we will somehow recruit the new gay masses to you know, unsuspecting straight kids will see a gay married couple and decide to be gay. I mean, to be fair, that's that's what happened to me. So <laughs> that is exactly what happened. I thought Exa- it was a quiz. No, no, no. That's how I found the bears. Oh, no, that okay, was right, right. that was after I saw I saw two men kissing in a Christina Aguilera music video, and I was like, that could be me. So I guess I want to talk a little bit about beyond the ick factor being used as a legislative tool, which we have seen it historically and we're seeing it happening now. I'd like to talk about the ick factor and how it affects young people, particularly young queer people who are coming to terms with who they are. Um, I know that as a young person coming of age, like I, I sort of realized I was gay in the early 90s and I was in high school in like 90 to 94 and I was starting to recognize that I was a gay person and that's what my life was. And these these messages of uh, gay equals death, gay equals disease, gay is terrible, gay equals pedophile, those were the messages that I had around in my head. And certainly I feel like kept me in the closet until I was out of high school, out of fear and self-loathing. And I'm, I'm curious if these messages, are these messages still harming young people today? Absolutely. No, absolutely. Like, um, I feel like they're a little bit more nuanced now. I feel like, uh, they're a little bit more nuanced now in that it's not as, it's not always as explicit as gay equals death. However, there's still a huge stigma when it comes to HIV AIDS that it is associated with queerness. So that still exists. I know I, I even throughout my health classes and things like that, I always associated HIV AIDS with queerness, whether or not I was told explicitly just in, in what we saw, that's just what it, that's just what HIV AIDS looked like. It looked queer. So, so I did associate it that way, but it wasn't as explicit as maybe your upbringing was. And I do know in my case, um, in my own personal case, it was much more dogmatic. It was much more talking about sin and talking about God and God's plan and how homosexuality goes against God's plan, which is really funny in retrospect, like, oh, really? Okay. It, it, it totally, it's it's totally still very relevant talking about. And, and now I think it's it's more nuanced and it's more explicit towards other identities such as transgender. Um, that is the more explicit pedophilia, assaulting, um, 
type situation like that rhetoric is now thrown towards that identity whereas um uh, uh quote-unquote mainstream queerness being lesbian and gays um are kind of more the representation is there uh, in a way that it wasn't in the 90s. So as a result, people can't necessarily get away with saying, if you're gay, that means you're a pedophile because so many people will be outraged by that. Well, I think we also with, there's also with uh, the trans identity, there's also the link to mental illness, that it is some kind of, they're mentally disturbed, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that it's not just, it's not just that, that they could possibly be pedophiles or predators, but that there's, it's a mental illness. Like you're, you're sick in the head. Well, and I want to say that it's either I forget if it's still in the DSM, or if um, if gender dysphoria is can is because it was only recently within like the 90s or the 80s when they finally took homosexuality out of the book. Like, no, it's not really a mental thing. Um, and I want to say that it's either still in or only just recently has um, gender dysphoria and. And uh, transgender has been considered um, a mental illness. I guess I also want to swoop this back, this conversation back to the the study from this from from science about how how a ten minute conversation with someone who may hold uh, anti LGBT beliefs can change those attitudes and change those beliefs toward the positive. And to talk a little bit about. Something that I feel like we don't necessarily discuss so much is the the activist power of the individual. I think we spend a lot of time in our discourse talking about how systems have to change and how we have to how laws have to change, how businesses have to respond, how um, how states should behave, and we miss that. Ideally, like the most the most powerful form of activism is the activism that you, as an openly queer person, can do in the room with another person. So long as it's safe. Yeah, so long as it's safe. Like the power, your power to change one other person is is enormous, and that that is an, of enormous value in the world. And it doesn't take a lot. It can only, it can be a ten minute conversation. I um, when I came out in high school, it was in a very public manner where I wrote a article in the school paper. Um, not that we had a huge readership or anything, but it was readily accessible and a lot of people did read it. And I noticed that in doing so, I did create this um, this this situation where I noticed a lot of more conservative friends, either very slowly or very immediately, depending on the person, just kind of came around to queer issues and and being much more tolerant which is an awful word, I hate that word, but it really does describe it, much more tolerant and much more accepting of um, not only myself, but about the idea of queerness. Um, So, like, I can't attest to that. I was lucky enough that I was safe uh, in doing that. I knew uh, deep down that I probably wouldn't get kicked out of my house, and if if I did, I knew I had a safety net. So in, in that situation, I was safe and I was able to, so I did. But I wouldn't necessarily say that's the end all be all. Everybody, all you children out there, write write coming out letters to your editors or write opinion articles about being trans and queer. Don't do don't do that unless you're safe. Don't do that unless you know that you're going to be okay at the end of it. Well, I think it is a, a message that you can say to those of us who are out in the world and who perhaps mm-hmm. 
live very comfortable existences in in communities in which they are out that we sort of take that for granted to some degree you know i don't go through the process of coming out nearly as much as i used to because i now i now live in a pretty in, in a world where my queerness is not such a big deal and i'm not necessarily meeting a ton of new people all the time in which my identity becomes an issue but um finding places to to speak that is useful and necessary finding those instances when i can do that like i this um when i before we moved to connecticut when i was working in tulsa i was a substitute teacher uh for a time and i was working at the middle school one of the middle schools in uh, tulsa and i was a one-to-one for one of the special ed kids and i followed him around to his various classes we were in social studies class one day and we were talking about china that was what they were studying and they were talking about overpopulation and they were asked to come up with all the kids were asked to come up with a list of the problems of overpopulation what could make uh what could be negative for china being overpopulated and the first thing that he said to me was there'll be more gay people in china because of overpopulation yikes right and so as a gay person, that was one shocking. And it was like, well, okay, what what do I do in this moment? What do I do? So I used my op- this opportunity to make it a teachable moment. And I asked, I didn't come out and say, well, I'm gay, young, middle schooler. How dare you? But um, we had a conversation and I asked him what would what would be so bad about there being more gay people in China? Why? Why do you think having more gay people would be a bad thing for that country? And, you know, what what if you know someone who is gay? What if you spend every day with someone who is gay? Then you just don't know that they're gay. By the end of that conversation, he he took it off the list. He took that thing off his list of problems with China because he understood what we were saying. And I thought, maybe that won't last. Maybe he goes home to a really homophobic house and Mm -hmm. those homophobic ideas will come back. But in that moment, he maybe felt differently. In that moment. Yeah, like in that, but that was like a positive thing. And yeah, and (laughs) I guess just to this, as in summation, just to end this, uh, this idea that, um, it's it remains important no matter where you are in your queer experience uh if you as neil said if you are safe and if you can to share your story because the people who hear that may really need to hear it and it may positively impact that person and may help change communities and families and cities and hopefully the world the world yeah. And if not, do what Cody did and kind of share your story, but in a way that's safe. Yeah. And in a way that doesn't compromise your position. Yeah. You know, knowing, knowing that, knowing the importance of, as you said earlier, contact theory, that when you know someone who is LGBT, it helps you understand them and you can create empathy, making those connections. That's how change happens. Mm -hmm. That's really the foundation of how change occurs. And if we want to stop North Carolina and Mississippi and these other states and all of this anti-LGBT legislation and this continual marginalization of LGBT people in this country. We definitely have to look at the big things, but we also have to really focus on what we can do in our individual lives on an individual level day by day with the people that we come into contact with to positively impact the community as a whole. 
We can change individual people. We can change communities. Be nice to each other. Yeah, absolutely. And that's how change will happen. Well, that'll be it for this week. As always, we really appreciate you listening. Uh, If you have not yet, please head over to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review or some stars. Uh, It uh, makes me smile if you do that. Uh, You can also find us on Facebook, search for Bearded Fruit and like us there uh, and you can find out more information about us. You can also find us on the web at www.beardedfruit.com. You get some episode extras and some other things. So we will see you next week. Bye. Bye.